0: We're in a very precarious position right now of worrying about her wanting to help and feeling really helpless. So it's nice to just be able to have a voice. I feel like part of this challenge for me in particular as a sibling is not having a place to have a voice and to have support and talk about the impact and the trauma that it's had on me over all these years. My fear is it's not going to go subside like it used to because she doesn't have the supports anymore. She doesn't have the community supports anymore at all. At least right now, you know, I've been here before and then something happens or or someone comes out of the woodwork and things get a little better. So I I can't predict, I have to just be in the moment and be where I'm at now and, and try to work with that as best I can.
1: Since starting this podcast, I've spoken very openly to our guests about mental illness and the impact it can have on those living with schizophrenia and their family members. It's not easy to talk about this illness, and it's not easy to see what this illness can do to your beloved sister, your brother, your mom, your aunt, your uncle, emotionally, psychologically, and physically. Today on Look Again: Mental Illness Reexamined, I'll be having a very honest and frank and vulnerable conversation with Yusuf Fakiri about what it's like to have a sibling with a serious mental illness. Yusuf's brother, Solomon had schizophrenia and in December of 2016, he died in an Ontario jail. Solomon had been charged with assault and uttering threats after an altercation with a neighbor and was waiting for psychiatric care at a mental health facility when he died. Having a sibling that has a serious mental illness can be incredibly difficult and can make you feel extremely helpless. How are siblings supposed to provide care and support and compassion, while at the same time taking care of themselves? It's definitely not easy. Yusuf, I so appreciate you being here with me today to talk about your brother and the impact that he's had on your life. Thanks for being here.
2: Rahim. Thank you so much, Phaedra, for your courage and giving me an opportunity to share about Suleiman story that Many of us throughout our nation, from coast to coast, have a story as your beloved sister or my late brother. Very grateful to be here with you today. So Yusuf,
1: let's start off by talking about your brother Solomon and his journey with schizophrenia.
2: Originally, my family came here to Canada as refugees from Afghanistan in the early 1990s. And what was very interesting is that growing up, Suleiman was the one that was able to adjust to this new culture, this new society better than all his other siblings. Solly was a gifted athlete, a gifted mind. He ended up getting into University of Waterloo's engineering program. He was the golden boy of the family, the star of the family that my parents, skipping were, that Solly represented. And then in the spring of two thousand and five, Solly got into a car accident, and it was after that car accident that, within a couple of weeks after being examined, that Solly was diagnosed. With this illness that we call schizophrenia. And that's where our story started. And it was a painful one, an extremely painful one.
1: Absolutely. Now, how old was Solomon when he was diagnosed? He was
2: 19 years old.
1: And so that would have put you a couple years older then?
2: Yeah. Solly and I were 18 months apart. Growing up, we were very close. And what was incredibly profound and fascinating is that his illness also brought us closer to all the pain and difficulty. Pedro, as a sister and as a brother, we feel like a certain love and also, as you articulate earlier, like an obligation to be able to be there for one another. And I'm not going to sugarcoat this and say that it was easy. I was devastated. At the night, I got a phone call. I was studying at Wolf Lurie University. My mom calls me and says, sully has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I went to my best friend. We were roommates. And for four or five hours, I was crying to him. Because for me, that night what it did was, and then this is where the cultural stigma comes in. And in soli's case, there's almost like a double or triple cultural stigma that like first within our general Canadian society, that stigma existed. And then there was within the Muslim community that my family comes from, there's that cultural stigma. And then also within the Afghan community, there's this cultural stigma. For me in my head, there's a derogatory term in Persian that refers to people with mental illness as psychotic. They wanna. One of the first times I used that term he went upstairs and he got a glass filled with half of it was all of his medications. He's like, you think I chose this illness, Yusuf? And so that in itself is me exhibiting the cultural stigma within the Afghan Muslim community. All too often within my cultural and religious communities is that the go-to is you hide these individuals from family, where you don't talk about them. You erase the identity. Here I was selfishly thinking about, in many
1: ways, my own self, in my little family. Yusuf, please don't beat yourself up over, as you said, thinking selfishly. That is not selfish. You were, we just don't know how to react. As we know, I also lost my sister to schizophrenia. And for the longest time, I didn't even acknowledge that I had a sister. Because it was just easier. So I do get it. I do get it. Solomon was, as you said, the golden child, that he was the one who adapted the most when you moved to Canada. And then he had that accident. What changes did you see
2: after that? For example, there would be an obsession with certain things, right? Like he would be cleaning the house, where I would argue it's a bit excessive. One of the common ones was that he suffered throughout his illness with insomnia. So he wouldn't be sleeping at night and getting up in the middle and being scared extreme levels of emotions or be more reactive. And these were things that came out of nowhere for us. So it was quite a struggle.
1: I am so appreciative that you were able to talk about your story and talk about your brother. How did your mother respond to that news?
2: I went back to Pickering, Ontario after Solly was diagnosed. It was a week after and she took all of us in the room, including my father. She said, you're going to accept my son for four years. And she looked at all of us in the eyes, including my father and her four other kids. And you know, Phaedra, that was a turning point. That forever changed our relationship on how we would deal with Sully. But because my mom created that space of dismantling that stigmatization, it didn't exist within our family. (laughs) It was not a perfect relation, but what that did is that it set the tone because my mother was the matriarch. My mother was the woman who survived war, who lost siblings as a result of the war, but always remained resilient. And that comment flipped our own relationship with mental illness. It effectively, what it did is that it opened the door for Sully to have somewhat of a thriving life. It put to rest in some ways, the stigma that existed within my religious community and within my cultural community. And I look back at that moment And I say to myself, what if my mom didn't do that? And even now today, Phaedra, as we've been fighting to gain justice for Sully, behind the scenes, the person that propels me every day and being able to do what I'm able to do is my mother. And so when people say the love of a mother can change the world, it certainly can. not an expert, (laughs) but someone who's shown her love and her strength and looking at her son ultimately as a human being as her son, not as solely with schizophrenia.
1: That was incredibly powerful. And as you said, the strength of our mothers and the strength of family. And I so appreciate what your mother said to you and your siblings and your father that day because it is so true. Solomon was Solomon first before he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Thank you for sharing that. And now we're going to talk about that Awful day in December of 2016. Yusuf, please take us back to that day in 2016. Absolutely.
2: Actually, a couple of days before that day, my dad and I thought that Solly was only there for 11 days. So my dad and I got a confirmation that the judge would order Solly to go to a psychiatric institution, as you mentioned, Ontario Shores Center for Mental Health. We were like, okay, happy, great. Solly will be taken care of by the system. And you talk about that help helplessness. But it was interesting, creature, was those 72 hours, the Monday and until the Thursday, the three days were the only time where my family did not feel helpless. Look at the ironic paradox here, right? Because we felt that, okay, he's finally going to get the help. I just want to take you back there for a second. My Thursday was a very interesting day. Very normal as it would be. I took the go train into downtown Toronto to go to work. Did some of my work in the office. I came home and I'm sitting in my bed around 8.30, 9 p.m. And I am talking to a friend and Palatine, my sister, Burgess and Sully's dead. And I hang up the call, I run downstairs and I see two police officers talking to my father. But then I go to the kitchen island where Sully and my mom would often spend time together. And I see my mom wearing her black hijab and her robe and pacing, Vedra around the kitchen. And so she said in Parsi, which basically means, Sully, I gave you milk. I gave you milk. Why did you leave me? Why did you leave me? And she kept repeating this. I sit her at her dining room and she just bursts out crying, but holds my hand and looks at me in the eyes. Yusuf, I need you to find out what happened to my son. So for me, I'm calming her down and I'm still processing my own pain. I'm not even getting a chance to mourn because I'm now being the oldest. And sometimes you have to remember these layers when you have parents that don't speak English. You're managing two cultures sometimes and sometimes you forget, what about you, right? They don't have any answers. And at the same time, Ab and Ali, my two other brothers, are out. They don't know what's going on. And I then call my brother Ab first. I tell him to come home, please. I was trying to, prevent on telling him this over the phone. I felt to give him some dignity. But because I was so vulnerable and he kept pushing, I said, Sully's dead. He's dead. I'll never forget that day.
1: No, that day will be forever ingrained in your mind. And how has that day impacted your life since December of 2016.
2: When I think of that day, I'm going to start with this word. In Arabic, we say, which means all praise be to God. We thank God. And so what that means is we're very grateful for what he gave us, Sully. We believe Sully belonged to him and He went back to him. So we're grateful for the time. But to talk to you in a vulnerable space and to put this into perspective, because I think it's important as you've made yourself vulnerable is... It's been a painful day. It's been a painful six years. There's a price that myself and my family paid. Sully paid with his life. We also paid the price in terms of choosing the option of fighting back. That was our choice. And I've come to appreciate that decision more, Phaedra, because in many ways, in the way I've gone about it, it's cost me other things in life. I have no regrets in terms of if I could go back, I would do it again. But when I set out to fight, I did not expect it to be this long. I did not expect it. I didn't appreciate the emotional part. You talked at the beginning about emotional, physical, all this stuff. I didn't appreciate that it was going to take a toll. I had friends telling me at the beginning, Yusuf, take care of yourself. Be careful. You need to put yourself first in my hand. I'm thinking like, how do
1: you, how do, you, do, how that? Do, you do that? Yeah.
2: And if you come from certain cultures, what happens is you're not supposed to be, quote unquote, weak. There's nothing wrong with being vulnerable, but there's something wrong. It's lying to yourself about your emotional vulnerability. I made that mistake and I paid the price because what would happen oftentimes throughout these six years, I would come home and sometimes that grief comes in. Sometimes that emotional pain comes in. And for me, because it was such a public fight, when you do media interviews, when you speak publicly, when you articulate it deep down the heart, it's very fragile. That fragility of that heart is taking a beating. I paid that price. And it's something that I'm still learning. And at times I ask myself, when is it time to move on? Or when is it time to say to yourself, the way you did is the best you could. And I remind myself that if I leave this earth today, if my time comes today, I can say with humble conviction that I truly did the best I could with the tools that I had. And for me, the proudest moment of all this, Sedra, is that We did it in a dignified way. We didn't do it through anger or through reaction. We did it through the way that we want people with mental illness to be treated. With respect, with honor, with a belief that their story matters, their voice matters. They need to be heard. I learned that from my mother and Sully in many ways played that role. Whether it was giving tea to people as they came to our house or whether it was him teaching my mom how to read or teaching my brother Ali how to drive. This was all after his illness, Phaedra. We often make the mistake sometimes that when we hear of somebody, he's schizophrenic, she has a mental illness, that is that they're subhuman, that they're incapable. We need to shift those comments and to know that's Sully, that's Sandra, that's Yusuf. They have a story to tell. Their story is about who they are and their character, not what their mental illness is. That's only a part of them.
1: And I know that you've been very public and you've done many media interviews. What keeps you going, Yusuf? Having that hope. Well, one
2: day, not just metaphorically, but literally, we build a garden of hope. And the many other Canadians that have suffered from mental illness that should be treated with dignity and honor, not with indignation, not with being humiliated, but with respect. That's what keeps me going.
1: That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. You're listening to Look Again Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and BC partner organizations. I'm your host, Phaedra Aldridge. This podcast would not be possible without the support of the community. From the bottom of our hearts, we want to thank you for caring about serious mental illness and everything that's around it. Together, we truly can make a difference. And welcome back to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined. I'm Phaedra Aldridge, and I've been speaking to Yusuf Fakiri about his brother Solomon, who lived with schizophrenia until his death in 2016. Yusuf, I'd like to play a clip now from someone who also has a sibling with schizophrenia and how that's impacted them. Let's take a listen now.
0: When I got married recently, I did feel resentment, it's like mixed emotions. And everyone was very concerned about my brother and being around people drinking and what the plan was and keep an eye on him. And there is like a part of me that that was my day. That's something I've been looking forward to. And even that day still had to have a lot of my brother's care involved. And I wouldn't change it for the world. I wanted him there. That was very important to me. But there is still that part of you that wishes that sometimes you could have a day off.
1: So Yusuf, did you ever feel like that when your brother was alive, that feeling of resentment or just that you wanted a day off?
2: Thank you so much. No one's ever asked this question. To be honest, the answer is yes. I'll tell you one night, I think it's the same thing in BC. When you involuntarily put someone, they can only hold them, I think, up until 72 hours. But most of the time, they let them go out after 24 hours. So one night, we put Solly in the hospital. They took him. The on-call doctor did an assessment, not even a psychiatrist, Phaedra. It's usually the on-call doctor. I deliberately made sure and tried my best for him to take him to the hospital. They usually get assessed. So for about two, three hours, I'm always calling. Has Solly been assessed? Is he going to be put into the psychiatric ward? So that night, I called for a few times. They kept saying, okay, not yet. We're going like, to examine him. I take an hour nap after that. And I call back the hospital. I said, like, oh, your brother's been released. It was like around 11 or midnight. I'm like, I'm like, are you guys kidding me? I was perplexed. My brother needs to stay here. And so now we're around midnight. I go downstairs and I tell my mom, we need to leave. So for like three hours in Scarborough, in a robe, and me in my slippers for three hours, we're walking the streets near the hospital trying to get a hold of Sully. And thankfully, like, what was amazing with Sully is that whenever he saw my mom, there was never any resistance, ever. And so we felt we dodged a bullet. And there was many of these nights, Fidra. And so for me, when you ask me that question, the answer is yes, not because of Sully, but because of the system's selfishness and the fact that they don't create more beds or more mechanism in place or more cultural competency support for people that are suffering from mental illness. All too often what happens is that if you don't have a family, you know this better than me, advocating for you within the system, those individuals are more likely to fall through the cracks. And so Veja, there was times when oh God, another time. When you're woken up from your sweet sleep, you get resentful. And most of the time that resentment was towards Sully. But how could I really blame him? And
1: how could we really blame your sister? And it's the illness. And that's something I say a lot. That wasn't my sister. When she was violent or saying things, it was the illness. It was not my sister.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, for you and I, Yusuf, just from the sibling perspective, it's a very difficult position for siblings to be in. Because on the one hand, we're trying to protect our parents and we're trying to do everything we can to shield them from the pain. And then on the other hand, we're also trying to protect our sibling that has the mental illness. So we're trying to do everything we can to shield them. And then where does that leave us as siblings? So I think feeling resentment, as you said, is a very natural feeling that we as siblings all experience at one time. The question is, how do we deal with that resentment and how do we move forward? And I think you are an amazing example, Yusuf of being able to move forward.
2: It means a lot. It's Fidra, and your comments. And as siblings, I like to add, there's always that struggle of making both worlds happy, right? Yeah, that's right. But then all, too often what happens is when you make those both worlds happy, you make the mistake of if you cannot take care of yourself, which is the third part of that world or part of yourself, you really can't make the other two happy because that'll come at another price. And for me, at times, because one parent was struggling on accepting Solly's illness, my father versus my mom who was really leading the charge. And here I am in the middle, sometimes living literally in two worlds when the system itself cannot be counted on to protect these individuals that suffering from mental illness. It very much is like a survival mechanism. And it breaks my heart.
1: As you and I know all too well, Yusuf, there are so many complex emotions involved with having a sibling with schizophrenia. So Yusuf, I wanna get back to your mother. And you said earlier that she guided your family to lead with compassion, and she was the matriarch when it came to your brother, and when it came to seeing your brother as an individual first. Can you tell me more about what your mother has taught you, especially now that Solomon is gone? One of the
2: things that my mom told me very shortly after Solly's death was, I don't have the tongue. You do? because my mom speaks English, but not in a way where she wants to. I know for that in itself is that I would have seen my mother speaking about her son. And so for me, there's almost this responsibility to call her and say, mama, what do we need to do? For me, it's very important. So that's one part. The second part, we would not be here today if it was not for my mother, supporting, leading. My mother, to the naked eye, is a simple woman. But she is much more than that. Her skill set is a resilience. And that's what's shaped me and transformed my family.
1: Thanks for sharing that. I would love to meet your mother. She sounds fantastic. She's
2: amazing. Thank you.
1: <laughs> so Yusuf, you keep saying you're fighting. And I have to ask, what are you fighting for today?
2: I'm fighting for the Suleiman Fakhiris. I'm fighting for the Chorissas. I'm fighting for the Pierre Corleons. the de Saint-Amour's. The Jordan Shares, the Cas Geddes, the Moses Beavers, the Ashley Smith, the Justin Hines, the many Canadians that have lost their lives, who suffer from mental illness at the hands of the opaque justice system that lacks transparency and accountability. I'm fighting for the honor and the respect of Canadians who are vulnerable, that need support. And ultimately, I'm fighting for the Soleimans and many other Canadians that are suffering from mental illness to live a life filled with honor and dignity and with respect. And although the word fight in itself might be seen as an innocuous term or combative, for me, the word fight, we could always use the word justice. I am articulating or hoping to create a system filled with justice. That's what's ultimate. The guards, Phaedra, that took my late brother's life, I'm not fighting revenge against them or the police forces that have failed to do the right thing and not pressing charges against the guards who took my brother's life. For them, they have a conscious feature. They have to live with themselves for what they did. That's not, for me, to decide. What I'm going to do is honor my late brother and let people know who he was. And the last part is that I'm fighting to make sure that Suleiman's death is not the last chapter of his life. This is the ultimate fight for me. I don't want our siblings to be a footnote in the history books. I want their names to be set far and wide because they deserve that.
1: Yeah. Wow. You are an incredible brother, Yusuf. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Seidra. And now, one final question for you, Yusuf. What is next for you? Where do you go from here? It's an important
2: question. What's next for me, ultimately, and I've made this decision recently, is To take care of Yusuf, as in our discussion, to have a family, to be able to honor my brother that way, because I know Sully would want that. What's next for me is to live my life never forgetting my brother. I visit Sully every Friday, but to go and live my life in the way that my brother would have wanted me to live. What that looks like, I'm not sure. I will try my humble efforts to be involved, such as having the honor and opportunity to speak before all of you, Phaedra, and having this conversation with you. We'll see what the story. Is left for me, but one thing is certain my brother's story will continue to be honored.
1: And there are many Solomons and many Carissas, my sister, that are out there. And there are many siblings like us that never, ever want to forget our siblings. So thank you so much for joining me today in this very emotional and open conversation. I truly, truly enjoyed our conversation, and thank you for your openness, for your honesty, and for everything you have done and continue to do to shine the light on serious mental illness. Yusuf, thank you for being with me today.
2: Thank you so much, Phaedra. May God bless you. May God bless everyone. And I certainly hope that the choristas and the Sunni mans around us, the future ones will be living lives filled with dignity and honor. There are beautiful souls that need to be celebrated respected and ones whose legacies will live to us and to the work that we do. And their stories have not finished. So thank you. And I'm very appreciative of the time that you gave me today.
1: And a huge thank you to your audience for joining us for this very powerful episode. Together we can change the narrative around mental illnesses like schizophrenia and help end the many myths and stereotypes that still exist today. If you have any questions or any comments, tweet us at BC Schizophrenia. To get our latest episodes, be sure to hit follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We hope you join us next episode. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. This podcast is brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and the BC Partners for Mental Health and Substance Use Information. We're a group of nonprofit agencies providing good quality information to help individuals and families maintain or improve their mental well-being. The BC Partners members are Anxiety Canada, BC Schizophrenia Society, Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division, Family Smart, Jessie's Legacy, the North Shore Family Services Program, and Mood Disorders Association of BC, a branch of Lookout Housing and Health Society. The BC Partners are funded and stewarded by BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, an agency of the Provincial Health Services Authority. For more information, visit heretohelp.bc.ca.